Fascinating people, fascinating places. G'day and welcome to the Dan Mainwaring Podcast. This is where we talk to and about the famous and the infamous, the celebrated and the obscure, the well-known and the undiscovered. Interviews, articles and discussions from around the globe. In joyful space, then let us sing On the 25th of April, 1915, Lieutenant Colonel Brown, the Aussie politician, and his men, including London-born bugler Henry White, make landfall at Gallipoli. Brad Monero, senior historian and curator of the Anzac Memorial, describes the scene. Really enthusiastic and courageous soldiers with a minimum of training, no combat experience, and an absolutely ferocious enemy. It's, it's just a recipe for disaster. And we know that this is the tragedy that killed your relative, indeed killed mine, and, and George Braun. Another British-born Anzac, Lieutenant William Malone of New Zealand's Wellington Infantry Battalion, leads his men ashore and soon runs into Colonel Brown's men, as he recorded in his diary. I got to Colonel Brown, who said he was in command of the show. I asked for some explanation of the position and why he had called for reinforcements from the New Zealanders. He didn't know and knew nothing. He had no defensive position, no plan, nothing but a murderous notion that the only thing to do was to plunge troops out of the neck of the ridge into the jungle beyond. He said that the truth was he feared that if he didn't go on, his men would run away. I said that was no reason to sacrifice my men. Also on site is Charles Bean, the official war reporter, as historian for the Australian Department of Veterans Affairs, Ian Hodges explains. Charles Bean was a journalist. He'd been born in Australia but educated in England, come back to Australia he was always interested in military affairs, and when the war broke out, he won a ballot of Australian correspondence and became the official Australian correspondent to the war. And he held the honorary rank of captain, but he was never an enlisted soldier. He, he was never officially a member of the Australian Imperial Force. He accompanied the troops to Egypt. He was on the first convoy. He was there for the whole time that they were training. And he was on the transport that took the men to Gallipoli. But he didn't land on Gallipoli until the second day of the campaign. He wasn't there for the first day. He had to watch what he could see from the deck of a ship. His reporting on Gallipoli didn't reach Australia until the early part of May. So nobody in Australia actually really knew that the Australians were in action for quite some time after it happened. Australians first accounts of the Gallipoli landings were written by an English journalist, a man called Ellis Ashmead Bartlett, and he wrote a glowing account of the Australians, a race of athletes, that sort of thing, you know, charging up the, the cliffs, made it sound like an incredible military feat, made it sound like a, a great victory, and he built the Australians up. And that meant probably more to Australians than anything from being because the praise was coming from an Englishman. And Australians wanted that. They wanted to be seen as, as, as I said earlier, as worthy. Ellis Ashmead Bartlett's um, cable certainly gave people that sense that the Australians had proved themselves in battle. Nobody at the time in Australia, no civilian reading the newspapers, for example, would have known 
that it had come close to being a disaster. And there was consideration given on the very first night to evacuating the force, but the senior military figures realised that any evacuation would be very, very costly in lives. And so um, General Ian Hamilton, who was the commander of the Eastern Mediterranean Force, ordered the troops on shore. Well, he, what he said to them was, you've done the hard part. Now all you have to do is dig, dig, dig until you are safe. And so the Australians established a beachhead on Gallipoli and were basically stuck there. They didn't make the head where they wanted. There's a series of ridges going in from the landing beaches and they were meant to, on the first day, reach the, what was known as the third ridge, but they never got there at any point during the campaign. And it's important to understand also the Australians and later in the day the New Zealanders landed on just one beach on the Gallipoli Peninsula, but a far larger British and French force were landing on the tip of the peninsula at Cape Ellis at the same time. So Australia's contribution, while significant, was far from the main contribution. But in Australia, everyone's interest was in what the, as they were known, the Australians in New Zealand as the Anzacs were doing on Gallipoli. And certainly the impression people would have got is that they were doing quite well and that they'd acquitted themselves well. And the latter part of that may be true, but the first part, not so much. They were they were besieged on a very small beachhead. In terms of back home, did they compartmentalise reporting to where they just focused on particular battles like Gallipoli, where it had the Anzacs? You must have focused on the Anzacs, or was it the whole empire for good or bad as well? Well, look, for the first part of the war, in fact, throughout the war, Australians were very well served in the news services that they got. And a lot of newspapers were syndicated with, for example, Reuters overseas. And people, even in rural Australia, from the very beginning of the war, were reading about the massive battles going on in Eastern Europe, in Prussia. They would have heard the term the Dardanelles. And they would have heard that term early in 1915 when an Anglo-French fleet tried to force their way through the, the Dardanelles to bombard Constantinople. They were defeated, but Australians would have been following that and could have followed that. That was the whole genesis of the of the infantry being needed to open a path for the fleet to get through the Dardanelles, which, which obviously never happened. But once the fighting started, Australians were desperate to find out about what was happening to their own men. And thereafter, of course, many of the stories in the newspapers focused on Australians overseas. But there was always, always news of other fighting going on and what other armies were doing. But as the war went on, yes, for Australians, most were mainly interested in what their own troops were doing. Officers like Braunt had little or no combat experience, but even the veteran soldiers were unprepared for the technological developments of World War One. We've got to explain that the trenches on the Western Front didn't really exist until 1916. They were a response by armies that had never experienced the power of modern weapons before they're going to war with really tactics that are no more sophisticated than occurred during the napoleonic wars groups of a thousand soldiers a battalion of soldiers is acting as a thousand rifles in 1914 and 1915 by 1917 and 1918 junior leaders are trained and their weapons, they've got light automatic machine guns, they've got hand grenades, their arsenal of weapons is much more sophisticated and they're able to devolve command to a much junior level. But in 1914 and 1915, it's, it's really very, very basic. They're throwing 
a thousand soldiers at a task that by 1918 they'd only be throwing a few hundred at because they had the firepower and the weapons by the time the Americans enter the war to do those tasks. And in 1914 and 1915, the generals are still hoping for a war of movement, so they don't want to dig in. They only dig in when they see their men torn to pieces by shrapnel fire and by machine gun fire. These are weapons that these generals, when they were junior leaders, didn't have to face. The commander of British cavalry in France and Belgium in 1914 and 1915 was a bloke named Horace Smith Dorian. Now, the last time he had been under fire was fighting the Zulus in 1879. So, you know, you can imagine a bloke who's used to leading cavalry against the Zulus in Natal suddenly being faced with shrapnel fire or machine gun fire. He's got to learn the whole process of war all over again. And this is the situation that our leaders at battalion, at brigade, at division and at army level have to learn in 1914 and 1915. By the time the Americans arrive on the, on the Western Front, those lessons have been learnt. And so they're able to pass them on to the American Expeditionary Force. But in 1914 and 1915, the thing that we've got to remember about the armies on the Western Front and at Gallipoli is that they are still learning their trade and how to fight modern weapons. People like George Braun has grown up reading about Waterloo, reading about the Crimean War of the 1850s, reading about the war against Peyton tribesmen on the northwest frontier. He hasn't learnt about accurately delivered shrapnel fire. He's only seen in training a weapon that can fire a cyclic rate of 650 rounds per minute, let alone brigading those machine guns. And so he's having to learn. And, and they're learning really basic things, like how to keep an army that's dug in healthy, teaching blokes how to dig latrines, how to wash their hands. You know, all of those sort of just basic, basic lessons about keeping that army fit enough to fight and doing that in a really hostile environment. There's no groundwater around Shrapnel Gully on Gallipoli. There's nowhere you can take cover from enemy shrapnel fire. The Turks occupy the high ground. There's a constant risk of sniper fire. In the early weeks of the campaign, the whole country is covered in scrub. It hinders movement. It limits your vision. So it's not like you've got this panoramic view over the battlefield. If the enemy dig in under a scrub line, they disappear. It's really hard to spot them. So you've got to go out and find where they are. The ridges and the gullies are not regular. It's a maze. You can drop down into one gully, follow it to its end, and you'll end up in a, in a blind canyon. Or you'll follow it and suddenly it'll branch to the east and west. And one section will be owned by the enemy and the other will have your own troops. And they don't know who's coming down that valley. Trying to put yourself in the role of someone like George Braund 
is quite complex because he doesn't know where he is. He doesn't know how to communicate more broadly with the rest of the army. He genuinely cares for his people. He, he loves them. He knows these people. Indeed, he knows that if he survives the war, he's going to rely on their votes. <laughs> and he wants to keep them healthy. He wants to keep them alive as well as defeat the enemy. And so he's trying to do too many things. The harsh criticism of Brond by New Zealand's Malone warrants deeper scrutiny, as Brad explained. At this stage, because of the diversity of training amongst leaders at battalion level, personalities really come into the way these people behave. Malone is very driven, personally, physically very brave, but there's also that New Zealand attitude, which is one of independent action. Australians tend to be much more effective at teamwork than the New Zealanders do. You know, you see the performance of Malone on Chinook Bay Air in August 1915, where he leads his men and he leads them in bayonet charges. They are surrounded and cut off, and that's when Malone shines. He dies there, and he dies with his soldiers, but they defend that position tenaciously, whereas Braun's training in Egypt has been as part of a brigade of New South Welshmen. I'm not sure that Malone saw the level of chaos that Braun saw from the moment he arrived on the peninsula. Malone arrived 24 hours after the landing, whereas Braun sees chaos from the moment he arrives. Braun's someone who's used to working in a system. He's a politician. He's used to working with consensus. He's confronted by a situation he doesn't necessarily understand. Braun's bugler, Henry Edward White, seemingly had a tendency towards superstition and kept on his person a so-called mad penny. That was the vernacular of the time to describe rare misprinted coins that were deemed to be lucky. But a coin, lucky or not, offers little protection in war. One week into the campaign, George Braun launched a nighttime patrol into no man's land. It's been reported that he failed to tell the sentries of his mission and that he was partially deaf. But for whatever the reason, one thing is clear. As he returned to base, he was mistaken for an enemy and shot and killed by one of his own men. On the same day, Henry Edward White was also killed. It's entirely possible that as his bugler and part of the HQ command, Henry was killed in the same friendly fire incident, but we don't know for sure. What we do know is that Braun's body was recovered, Henry's was not, though one of his mates did retrieve his not-so-lucky coin and years later made attempts to reunite it with his family. Coming up, two families grapple with tragedy while tackling the bureaucracy and chaos of war. And Ian Hodges explains to us the legacy of Gallipoli. While you're here, here's a sneak peek of what else you can hear on season three of my podcast.
As I often say, uh, UFOs took an interest in me before I took an interest in them. When you have secrets, you're invariably going to have people who think there's a huge conspiracy at work. There were four crashes within four hours in four different lakes. The military investigated all of them, and they never found the explanation to them. That was where I finally was able to put things into context. People make all kinds of mysteries about this stuff. Some people say they had telepathic contact. That is when I saw the mantis being uh, for my first and only time. For the average soldier's family back in Australia, what was communication like? People didn't have to wait months. If, if your loved one was killed or wounded, you would find out by telegram relatively quickly that that had happened. You wouldn't get details, and so people had to live with this unbelievable anxiety. If you got a telegram saying your son was wounded, that's maybe all it would say. And so families in Australia are being left wondering how serious, how bad is the wound? Will he live? Will he die? How's he being looked after? All of that sort of stuff. The news of a man being wounded or killed came relatively quickly. A few weeks after Braun's death, his brother contacted the Ministry of Defence, seeking, among other things, the safe return of his two horses. But the policy at the time, allowing the personally owned horses of fallen soldiers to be claimed and used by other troops. Nonetheless, under pressure from his family, the Prime Minister of Australia was soon involved in efforts to expedite the return of Braun's other possessions. Sir, it has been represented to me in Parliament that the widow of the late Colonel Braun is unable to secure the return of the effects of her husband. I attach copies of two communications addressed to her by military officers at Zaitown and Mustafa respectively. I feel that no special emphasis is necessary on my part to secure for this matter early attention on the part of your colleague, the Minister for Defence. When Braun was killed, within weeks, one of the most expensive memorials ever made in Australia was erected to him in the Parliament of New South Wales. It's still on the wall there. Two local members of Parliament were killed at the Anzac landing, Braun and a bloke named Ted Larkin. Braun was a conservative and, and Larkin was a Labor politician. Larkin was a sergeant, Braun was a lieutenant colonel. Larkin, as a sergeant, led one of those units that got through to the Third Ridge and was overwhelmed and they watched Larkin and his men die from the Second Ridge on the first day of the landing. Braun obviously dies a few days later. In the Parliament in New South Wales, and it's still there, is this massive monument on the wall in memory of George Braund and Ted Larkin. And they've got a sword representing an officer, uh, Braund, and a rifle and bayonet representing a, a soldier, a Ted Larkin, crossed at the top of this memorial in the, in the parliament. So when it was unveiled, there was open weeping and grief in the parliament. They were seen, I suppose, as martyrs, if you like, and they inspired people to enlist to avenge their deaths. We were shocked into enlisting by the casualties of Gallipoli. On the 25th of November, 1915, a letter with further details about Henry White's death was mailed to his family in London. Dear Madam, 
with reference to the report of the regrettable loss of your son, the late number 807 Private H.E. White, 2nd Battalion. I am now in receipt of advice, which shows he was killed in action at Gallipoli Peninsula on 3rd May 1915. Three weeks later, with the letter en route, Henry's only brother, William, was killed fighting on the Western Front. The letter about Henry was never received, as his parents had moved and the new residents of their old home had no forwarding address. Henry's mother eventually claimed his pension as his next of kin, although after six months it was temporarily stopped as a records department could not locate an original copy of his will. Dear Sir, I have to acknowledge the receipt of your letter of the 22nd, and to state as to the attestation sheet held here for the late 807 Private H.E. White, 2nd Battalion, as a duplicate copy. Only his signature does not appear thereon, and I am therefore unable to furnish the desired tracing. With casualties mounting and the wounded returning home, I asked Ian Hodges if this affected the Australian psyche and hopes of winning the war. The first wounded came home in about July 1915 while the Gallipoli campaign was still going on. And from then on, there was always a a trickle of wounded coming home to Australia throughout the war. And what it meant was that during the war, people's contact with men who'd been to the front was always contact with men who'd been wounded or were too ill to continue their service or in some other way had had to be sent home. But as far as winning it goes, there was always an undercurrent, particularly after 1916 when Australians first went into action on the Somme, on the Western Front, that there were never enough men. And so recruiting was a major, major part of Australian life during the First World War needing more men, needing more reinforcements. As for people talking about whether they believed they were winning or not, my impression is that most people more or less thought that that we would win the war. They believed in the British Empire again and the strength of that empire and the strength of the Allies and that ultimately they would prevail. But of course there were times of doubt and worry, particularly as the war dragged on through 1917 and into 1918. The contact people had with returned soldiers, as I just said, was often with men who'd been wounded or maimed or in some other way disabled, psychologically perhaps as well. And what impression they gave, I I don't know. Uh, there would have been individual conversations at home with the family once someone got home, but the nature of censorship was such that Australians didn't really have a, a realistic picture of what was happening overseas, certainly in 1915 and probably not until later in 1916 when more and more men were coming home. But you'd have to take each case as an individual. Some men were incredibly despondent because of the condition that they came home in and realised that their lives had been changed forever. But equally, a lot of people regarded being wounded and getting sent home as a kind of deliverance, particularly once the Australians were on the Western Front and the carnage there was leading to the deaths of tens of thousands in, in major battles. And so for many people, getting wounded and coming home was a good thing. And for their families too, who had the worry and the anxiety and never really knew what state their man would come home in until he got home and they saw him. And soldiers, of course, writing to their families, tried to play down the nature of their wounds, particularly the more serious ones. And so families too must have, you would think, become despondent when they saw their son maybe come home missing a leg or or his legs or psychologically damaged or in some other way very different to what he had been like when he left. And so you have families dealing 
with individual returned soldiers, perhaps needing to care for them far beyond what they might have expected. And so, yeah, it's hard to imagine that people were very pleased with that. But at the same time, I think most people thought in the long run the Allies would prevail and that we would win the war. Having failed to make substantial progress against either the Ottomans or the Alamans, Anzac Cove was evacuated in December 1915. Miraculously, there were no Allied casualties during the secretive retreat. It was an operation that bears comparison with Dunkirk. But at the time, was it seen as a failure, or were the escaping troops hailed as heroes, just as the men from Dunkirk would be a few decades later? Well, the, the first thing is, the very big difference between the two is that the soldiers who were taken from Dunkirk went straight home. After they, they were taken to England and were seen immediately by the population there, whereas the men who were evacuated from Gallipoli remained, first on Lemnos Island, off Gallipoli, and then were sent back to Egypt. And so they didn't come home, and so there was no sense of heroes welcome or anything, but people were relieved that the campaign was over. It clearly hadn't gone anywhere, and there'd been a massive Allied offensive in August to try and break the deadlock on Gallipoli. But all it ended up with was um, a new landing beach, so the Allies would be sieged in, in a larger area, but still be sieged. And certainly in the Anzac area, where the Australians and New Zealanders were fighting, they made very little headway. They won a victory at Lone Pine, which was a, a, a Turkish position in the southern part of the, the Anzac area. But the battle at Lone Pine was a feint to draw attention from the main attempt to occupy the high ground that had been the objective for the first day. And that failed completely. And so the victory that the Australians won at Lone Pine meant very little because it was a feint. It wasn't the main part of the attack. But at home, people, and I think the soldiers too on Gallipoli, were relieved to have got away with it. They, and people were proud. People were proud that the Australians who admittedly had acquired a a fairly poor reputation in Egypt for indiscipline, drunkenness, all sorts of, of crimes um, and misbehaviour. And so people were relieved also that they had bolstered their reputation. And so if their reputation away from the battlefield was less than sterling, people were very proud that in battle they'd won a fine reputation. And Australians were also proud that they had stuck it out for eight months in this almost impossible situation, a very inhospitable place. The Gallipoli peninsula was a place where there was no rear area so if you were in the Anzac area there was nowhere safe there was nowhere you could go to get away from the fighting unless you got some time off on Lemnos Island but for the men on Gallipoli it was a it was a matter of enduring in this very different there was even getting fresh water was extremely difficult and so men lived on a limited ration of water they lived on a monotonous diet that couldn't be replenished because there was nowhere to get anything, everything had to be shipped in. And there was also the fact that for large periods of the campaign, more men were evacuated suffering from illness than were ever wounded by the Turks. Dysentery, in particular, really plagued the force. They were proud that they'd managed to pull off the evacuation without suffering any casualties from right under the noses of the Turks. And, and on that, there is a school of thought that says that the Turks knew that the evacuation was going to take place and were quite happy to let it happen because it would have been a bloodbath on both sides. But the Australians didn't know that at the time. The average soldier could never have known that. And so people were relieved and proud. 25th of April became Anzac Day. With the war still ongoing, was it a festive 
went off to battle bravely or was it a somber kind of affair of thinking of all the people that died? It was both, particularly in 1916. And Anzac Day was commemorated from the very first anniversary and the Australians who were in Egypt held parades and commemorative events. There was a march through London on Anzac Day 1916. Anzac Day had no precedent. There had never been an occasion like this in Australia. And so people didn't really know how to take the day. And there was certainly an element of mourning and somber reflection on what had happened there and on the loss of life. But there was also a celebratory element to it that, yes, Australians had performed well in battle on their first test. And people were proud of that. You would find in a lot of places in the morning there would be church services and commemorative services that were somber and remembering the dead and the cost of the campaign. But in the afternoon, there might have been more fun events going on for people. But there were those who wanted to shut down pubs, wanted to shut down sporting events on the day and keep it as a sombre occasion. But there were others who wanted it to be more celebratory and they included men like John Monash, the Australian general, who ended up becoming the overall commander of the Australian Imperial Force later in the war who believed that it was a a day to be proud and a day to celebrate. How would you say now, from an Australian perspective, looking back at Gallipoli specifically, is it regarded as an event in Australian history? In many ways, it's regarded as the event in Australian history. We've not that many years ago come off the centenary of Anzac, and I should have spelled out at the very beginning that that stands for Australian New Zealand Army Corps. Anzac Day is probably still the most important secular event on the Australian calendar. It's a public holiday in Australia even now. There are marches in country towns and in the cities on the morning of Anzac Day. There are dawn services that are often attended by tens of thousands of people, particularly at the Australian War Memorial, and never more so than on the 100th anniversary of the landing in 2015. There were also large ceremonies overseas on Gallipoli, The interest was such that there had to be a ballot and you had to get tickets to be able to go there because the commemorative area can only hold so many people. Similar large public ceremonies took place throughout the centenary in Turkey and in France and in Belgium, where the Anzacs mostly fought, at Beersheba too in in the Middle East, where Australians fought. Uh, Gallipoli, it has a complex history and there have been times in the past where it looked like it might just fade away, public interest waned, particularly... For example, during the era of the Vietnam War, where things military became quite unpopular and people wondered whether Anzac Day had a future. But at the same time, in the mid-1960s, a new generation of Australian scholars started actually looking at the First World War from a scholarly perspective, and that had never really been done up to that point. Charles Bean, who had been the official correspondent and who we spoke of earlier, ended up becoming the Australian official historian of Australia in the war, and he wrote 12 wrote or edited 12 large volumes, incredibly detailed volumes of Australia's part in the war. And for a long time, that that intimidated other historians and other people from trying to write their own version. But in the 1960s, men like Bill Gamage, who in the 70s published his book, The Broken Years, which was really one of the earliest works to focus on the life of the ordinary soldier in the First World War. There was a 50th anniversary, what they called a pilgrimage of veterans to Gallipoli, And a scholar called Ken Inglis accompanied that mission to Gallipoli and wrote about the veterans, probably the first time anyone had really written about them in that way and treated them as individual people, you know, with their own stories and their own memories and 
impressions of Gallipoli. As the 20th century came to an end, Anzac Day underwent a revival. Through the 80s and 90s, there were popular television series about the First World War for the first time. There were movies about it. Gallipoli is a very well-known Australian film, still probably popular today, that made people see the First World War differently and made people perhaps see military service differently, particularly where the world wars were concerned and people coming to understand that these were young men who went through a terrible ordeal and it came to be seen that way and soldiers came to be viewed perhaps more sympathetically than in the past. And so Anzac Day underwent this unexpected, I think, revival late in the 20th century and it has just built and built and built up to the centenary in particular. And so for a few decades now, it's, it's been very popular. And it also came to include people that have previously been excluded. In its initial form, Anzac Day was a commemorative event for white men who'd been to the war. It didn't pay heed to the role of women, for example, the role of Indigenous Australians, many of whom also served. There were a lot of groups that felt themselves excluded, but over time, those sort of things began to change and it became a bit more inclusive looking at immigrants to Australia and people of other ethnicities who had also served in later wars because Anzac Day has come to stand for all the wars in which Australians have been involved, not just the First World War and not just Gallipoli. The marches today will include, maybe less so now, but certainly in the past came to include veterans of the Second World War who are becoming quite elderly now, but also Korea, Vietnam, Malaya, all the military endeavours that Australia has, has undertaken in the last century a part of Anzac Day and so today the march will include far far younger people, people in their 20s who've been perhaps in the Middle East, in Afghanistan or on peacekeeping operations. So it's become a far bigger, far more inclusive event than it used to be and it goes on and my suspicion is one day it probably will fade but I can't see that happening anytime soon to be honest. the flaming crows it's time for dan to do the harry watch out for the next podcast and follow all dan's activities at www.danielmainwaring.com